for me, the real word, sustainable, if you cross away that word and just put the word tomorrow, it means the same thing. So tomorrow in terms of investing in the staff to educate and to motivate and inspire them to produce down that road. Or it's also the ones that have a, an ethos of creating the products that we use. Welcome to Bar Chat. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today, I'm speaking with Adam Handling. Adam is chef and proprietor of the Michelin star Frog Restaurant in London, Ugly Butterfly in Cornwall, and Eve Cocktail Bar in London, amongst others. He was awarded Restaurateur of the Year by GQ in 2020 and has picked up various other awards along the way. He is, without doubt, one of my favorite up-and-coming British chefs. On the episode, we talk about how Adam established himself as a chef and the route his career has taken up to this point. We talk about Adam's zero-waste policy and how it pairs with his commitment to offering modern British luxury food and drink. Adam describes some of the innovations he and his team have taken to source locally and make the absolute most out of every ingredient that passes through his doors. In particular, how the synergy between bar and kitchen maximises the opportunity to waste less. And he gives us some great example of drinks that use some leftover ingredients from the kitchen and yet still taste absolutely delicious. I think Adam's careful critique of ingredients and flavor is a great blueprint for a sustainable bar and restaurant operation, and I hope you find it useful and interesting. Okay, I'm here with Adam Handling. Hey, Adam, how you doing? I'm good, I'm good, thank you, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Right, as always, we're gonna start with quick fire questions. This is like six questions that you're gonna answer as rapidly as you can with as few words as you can, so whatever comes to your mind. All right. What's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? Um, pig's intestines. What's your desert island cocktail? Manhattan. No, spicy margarita. Ooh, they're quite different drinks. Uh, <laughs> you hadn't, if you hadn't become a chef, what would you have been? A photographer. If you were only allowed one type of knife with which to cook for all of the rest of your days, what would it be? A pastry knife. What food is your, or food or drink is your guilty pleasure? KFC. Nice. Name a dish that your mother or father can cook better than you can. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, champagne or chocolate? Champagne. And what's your favourite cheese? Anything blue. Mmm, nice. Um, I, I agree with you on quite a few of those. Um, pig's intestines probably up there is one of the weirdest things I've eaten. Did you eat it in China by any chance? No, I, I, I did a, um, a takeover in a vineyard in, um, in the north of Italy. And uh, we went to this really beautiful, really beautiful restaurant in the countryside, completely picturesque, perfect. And uh, we had the taste menu from the chef. He got a little excited that we were all coming over and he just started making these dishes up. And he called it cabanara. And instead of using pasta, he used, it was either lamb's or pig's intestines that he used instead of pasta. And it, was, and he, it wasn't even cut up. It was just like wow. thin tubes of chewy, Oh my god, it was disgusting. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't want to focus too much on intestines, but it does always strike me as strange some people's aversion to them because a lot of sausages are still packaged in intestine, right? Sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And obviously, you're not, it's, there's more to it. There's a filling in there, yeah. uh, as well as the intestine. You're not just using it in substitute for pasta, but still, we consume a lot of intestine and probably don't realize it, right? For sure. And haggis. I'm Scottish. I love it, even though it's a stomach, but there's still some bobs in there. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So you are um, a restaurateur, chef. Um, you are making waves with um, your restaurants and now a, a bar as well. I have not been to Frog in London, but Ugly Butterfly I've been to twice because it's in Cornwall and I live in Cornwall. Oh, nice. Um, 
And I visited once, yeah, I visited, I think, about a year ago and then again uh, in the summer. And it is fantastic. And uh, not to put too much of a sort of Cornish emphasis on this, because I realise that most of our listeners probably have never been to Cornwall or, um, you know, aren't going to go to Cornwall. But I think it's the best restaurant in Cornwall at the moment. Oh, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, it's, it's um, they've got the, what's it, the 50, 50 Best Bar Awards tomorrow where Ugly Butterflies in there, which is great. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, Josh Limfit, your uh, bar manager there, is an old friend of mine. In fact, he's he's worked for me at one of my bars in the past. And then we worked together many, many years ago at Jamie Oliver's 15 restaurant in uh, Watergate Bay. Oh, sweet. Yeah, he's a phenomenal character. He's up to, he's, he's arriving in London today, actually. He's staying with me. Uh, he's, a, he's a great character. So much passion, so much energy. And he really, he really gets what the, the vision of what we're trying to create, not only in the restaurants, but also in our bars. And he runs with it. And, and we, can, we tend to allow everyone to run with it, as long as it stays within the, the, the ethos. Yeah. He's great. He's definitely not short on energy, that's for sure. He is like a Duracell bunny of the bar world. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so what is the ethos of the restaurants and the bar? Tell, tell us a little bit about them, if you can describe them. Sustainable British luxury. That's pretty much it all there. Sustainable because everything that we do is very thought-provoked. It's very um, utilised everything. It's, being, it's about smart. The future of how hospitality should be looking at not only its drink servings, but its food servings too. Luxury because I want the best of everything in my groups. Um, we're not the cheapest at all, but we, we, we base that on the products that we use. We, uh, we, we, we source directly from farms, therefore it comes at a premium because we want the best of the products, not just looking at the, the price-wise. And also just to give that sheer, put that UK on that pedestal of what it can do. And best of British because I'm a, I'm a proud Brit and I will only ever do food and drink that is predominantly focused on what we can do on this island or what we can grow, create and uh, serve on this island. So them three together there, sustainable British luxury is the, is, is the ethos within the group. Which is the hardest of those three to achieve, do you think? Every one of them points need the other one beside it to make it work. So I would say the sustainable part is the hardest because it takes a lot more time to, uh, to source, to teach, to train. Um, to educate, inspirate, motivate the staff because to become sustainable you need to also think about tomorrow too. So the staff is pretty much like 70% of that whole um, the, 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 the sustainable part, that ethos is the staff. So I would say that's probably the hardest one. What, what does the sustainability mean to you in practice? Like tell us about some of the stuff that you're doing at the restaurants and, and um, Eve, the bar that um, you know, because you, the term sustainability is obviously flashed about a lot these days, and it means different things to different people. And I think in, a, in most, in, in a lot of cases, it can, you know, have a, dip, a different impact uh, to other cases. So, what what is it the sustainable practices mean to you? You mentioned the staff and tomorrow, but um, if you maybe unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. So I would say sustainable sustainability is the word that's chucked around way too much, and it's just because it's the hype word at the moment. But for me, the real word, sustainable, if you cross away that word and just put the word tomorrow, it means the same thing. So tomorrow in terms of investing in the staff to, to educate and to motivate and inspire them to produce down that road. Um, or it's also the ones that have a, a, an ethos of creating the products that we use. At the end of the day, a bar and a restaurant, we have the easy job. All the hard work's made into making that wonderful product. 
We have the easy job of just combining them, warming them, cooling them, stirring them, chopping them, and then that, and then serving it. So as an end user, if we mess up all that hard work, we're kind of being completely the opposite of sustainable. But also we source from sustainable practices, you know, ones that do farm rejuvenation or, or uh, directly to the source um, and be very methodical that way. Ones that give back there and we help that path line down, it's actually quite easy. And then from when it comes to an operational standpoint, if you're taking a product and you're utilizing it all in its entirety, even if it can't be used in one area, the reason why I created a bar was we can utilize it in another and you have that synergy of food waste. And that was one of the main reasons why we called Ugly Butterfly Ugly Butterfly was because of that exact same theme. But to utilize the byproducts of food into drinks um, and have like a circle of a, of a complete circle, I think was very important to this one particular site. Yeah. Is your, I mean, you've been cooking for obviously quite a few years, I don't know how old you are exactly, but have you always kind of had this, um, you know, I guess emphasis in your career on, on focusing on sustainability? Is it something that you sort of cottoned onto earlier? Because it is a more recent trend. Um, but, you know, if you've always kind of been looking at ways in which you can reduce waste or make, you know, in, uh, instigate more sustainable practices in your cooking, or is it, or do you feel like, you know, you've been caught up in this wave and now sort of obviously become one of the kind of poster chefs of, of, the, of the new wave of sustainability? If I'm honest, no, not really. I've been cooking for 19 years and um, I only really started to be down that sustainable route possibly about eight, nine years ago. And it was only because after I, I had my, I created my own restaurant, my first restaurant in, um, in London, which was in East London in a, in a car park kind of pop-up style. And we had it for two years. It was a two-year two lease. And the reason why we wanted to then go down that sustainable route probably about six months into operations is because I couldn't afford to pay the bills. Mm. So it's, it's not because I wanted to save the world or I wanted to, to do all of this kind of methodical yeah, uh, hippie stuff and all that, because it wasn't that popular back then either. It was because I was, we were buying directly, products were always a big thing for me. So we still bought day boats, we went directly to farms and that price was astronomical. But you say the weather is uh, bad one day and good the other, that means our day boat fish will be slightly different. Reprinting that menu and then having, having like five portions of the previous day's fish left, because we don't have enough of the other one. There was a lot of food waste going in that process. And obviously when I say food waste, it wasn't going in the bin. The staff were just having the time of their lives. <laughs> but it, it, we were struggling to pay the bills. We created another restaurant called Bean and Wheat, which is all about everything in jars, everything with sourdough and coffee. So the idea was whatever we had left over, we jarred it. You know, we, we buy whole chickens or whole ducks. We made little parfaits from the livers, but only made like maybe five or six kilner jars worth. It's not enough for a menu, but it's enough to sell and at least bring some revenue back. And it was just that whole thought process of, even if it's a small amount, can we make something with it? You know, work a little harder, use our skills. We're all we're all pay, we're all paid annually anyway, so it's not like we're not paying overtime. But we can work harder and uh, think what can we make that we'd normally throw away as small amounts and sell it. And then that was where it all came it came about that they were offsetting our bills. So what would normally be thrown away was lowering our lowering our overall costs. And then it wasn't until we opened The Frog in, in Covent Garden, the Mission Start restaurant, as well as Eve Bar, where we then as a company had a lot more, 
um, potential revenue to be able to uh, invest into staff to go down that process a little bit more and a lot more stronger. And um, as soon as th this site opened is when this was number three out of ten. As soon as that site opened, we were able to we were able to put a big training program in place, bring on apprentices to do agriculture and waste management, um, and you know spend a lot more time going directly to the source and having a complete sustainable team within inside of our group to, to educate and, and teach. Um, and then it just went on and on. It just became more of more of a passion. Just like I started to be a chef, it wasn't a romantic story. I just did it so I didn't need to go to school. And it's the same as sustainability. I wish it was romantic that I, you know, I fell in love with something or whatever, but it wasn't. It was a necessity to stay open tomorrow mm. is why I got into sustainability. It's, um, it's amazing, isn't it, the way that the industry is sort of having to look for sustainable practices by actually returning to the way in which we would have done things hundreds of years ago. Right. You know, when food was much more scarce and especially, you know, at certain points in the seasons, you had to pickle, ferment, brine, preserve, dry, whatever it is, you know, cure with sugar or salt or something to that effect in order to have nutrition the year round. And we're sort of it's like we've rediscovered that, isn't it? Yeah, no. So, uh, Britain was very, very wasteful at one time, and then got really poor during the war, and then got very wasteful again. You know, the UK, the UK is very was very blessed by having a monarchy where the sun never sat on her on her um, throne, which meant that we can get whatever we wanted around the world whenever we wanted it. And I feel like we we lost our way a little bit within that, that time at that time of point, refound it in the war and then got back to normal as soon as the boats were back open. Now it's people are thinking a little bit more, but Britain for sure is one of the most wasteful countries in the world. Do you think there's limits on, you know, the reuse of um, ingredient ingredients that would otherwise be discarded? You know, do you find stumbling blocks with certain products where you're like I mean, let's take coffee for example. You brew it into coffee and you're left with sort of spent coffee grounds, you know, what, what use is that, knowing that you kind of extracted the best out of the coffee? Is it, is it you know, can you kind of honestly say that it's okay to, I'm not suggesting you're even using spent coffee, you probably are though, but like, is it okay to then use that to flavor a sauce or a dessert or something or rather knowing that actually it would have been better if you'd used the fresh coffee and you're kind of resorting to the, you know, the B team in terms of flavor? You, you are, in terms of flavor you are, but in terms of properties you're not. You can use it to substitute flour, for instance. So if you're making a brownie and you, you use coffee grounds mm. instead of flour, it'll, it'll, set, it'll set with air and you get like a, a really, really soft kind of mocha or like these little mud cookies and things like that. You can substitute things where it's not, okay, you're not drinking an espresso as an espresso, that's got the bags of bags of flavor. If, if you, you wanted that flavor in, in, a, in an item, you would use that mm -hmm. but if you're wanting the subtleties and the, the the little parts you can do you know infusing it into a gin or something like that that to, to make like a negroni um uh, scented with coffee yeah you know it's not going to be like uh, an espresso martini it's just going to be the, the accents that you're going to add to it now and the, the 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 book perfect three cherries is all about utilizing and cross-charging from food products um and drinks products into not only just into cooking, but into eating and pairing and, and making into cocktails. It you will get the best. You will get the best if you use the 
the product the correct way, but it's life is more exciting when you need to think outside the box and think, okay, this goes in the bin every day. What the hell can we do to make sure that it doesn't? And then you need to think, okay, and that you, you, you break it down into its categories, you break it down into its characteristics, and you just need to, you need to think. And people that think outside the box create something quite unique. And that's what's exciting about being able to uh, being able to have the ability to cook or make drinks this way. You get to think outside the box and be unique, understand the foundations, but um, make something completely new. Not just you know, a Negroni is a Negroni. It's a wonderful drink, but it's the same in every single bar. If you have a Negroni like there, and then you have a different version of that with the same characteristics, it's a little bit more exciting, I think. Mm. And. There's obviously a trial and error process in that. Um, I guess, you know, sticking with that coffee example, the first time you attempt to use coffee grounds as flour, perhaps you're not necessarily sure whether it's going to work out. Similarly, you know, infusing, um, you know, some sort of, um, let's say, peelings of fruit uh, into an infusion that are then going to be used in a cocktail. You never quite know until you've done it how it's going to turn out and how it can be used right or, or do you feel like uh, that your your team and your intuitions on these matters sort of give you a good idea of the success likeliness of success i think now yes but at the beginning definitely there was a lot of trial of error and mostly failing we just need to think about it in the long run to say well technically it was food waste already so if it did fail it's it's not it's still going to go in the bin anyway yeah but the thing is where where you only learn from the mistakes you make in life so the more mistakes you make at the very beginning and understand these products later on in life when you're far larger and you have a far more bigger impact, then mistakes won't be made and you'll be making results. So if you think of it that way, it kind of makes you sleep better at night. Yeah, yeah, sure. So you mentioned um, the part of the reason for the bar was knowing that you could better utilize food waste from the kitchen. So. Can you sort of explain why it is that bars are well positioned to to use that stuff, rather in, in perhaps even better positioned than the kitchen is to use it? Uh, not not just only in the cocktails, but in, if you think well, my bars in particular is all smaller smaller foods, smaller plates of foods, uh, bites like we call them snacks, uh, kind of style. So let's we'll go to the food part first, and then we'll go then we'll jump onto the drinks one. So in my restaurant up here, you have proper big proper big plates of food, um, and therefore you require a lot of surplus waste. A snack or a garnish or, or something to go alongside a drink requires far less, therefore I need far little waste. You have the ability to make smaller things a lot more, and that's why the bar was a fantastic thing to do. And then if you even go one step further to say, it only, re it only really goes into a drink if you can't make it into a food item for sure and then we start to think how can we do it you know the outer leaves of red cabbage for instance we do this really stunning red cabbage kind of like sparkling um, cocktail where we infuse it into vodka and obviously but we only use the outside leaves and, and it, it, it cabbage doesn't really smell particularly nice so we had to play around a lot with how we can um, how we can utilize them leaves and not make it smell when you uh, pour the drink um, but there's lots and lots of wonderful things that you can do. You just need a yeah, trial and error, practice really. The cabbage is an interesting one, I read cabbage, because it changes colour depending on the acidity as well, doesn't it? It goes red if it's acid and blue if it's, if it's alkaline. I used to have a bar years ago um, where we did a colour changing drink using um, the anthocyanin that you find in red cabbage. It was like a build-it-yourself cocktail served on a tray. And we... Um, 
I'm trying to remember exactly how we how we did it, but we served them this sort of infusion that was like purpley colored, and then they're instructed to mix together different components, and it changed from red, some from blue, and then to red, and then finally uh, back to purple again when it was ready to drink. And the whole idea was like a kind of like a bit like a Professor Snape Harry Potter kind of potion mixing class, um, and they were the whole point being that they were slightly hesitant to actually consume this drink by the end of it. I'm not sure if that's good sort of culinary practice to really kind of put your guests off to consuming something, but it was it was exciting. Sounds it. Based on sort of what I've seen in um, uh, Ugly Butterfly, uh, some of your serves are quite theatrical um, in terms of the service where um which is quite unconventional down there and i seem to remember a bit of dry ice knocking about on one or two courses that i've had there too um you know how important do you think theater is in food and drink as part of the experience i think if you're going down the luxury market you want to be doing that value for a pound kind of thing so how do you different one say what a bread course for instance how do you change it from one to another and and uh, have that value for a pound for the guests? And it is it is about the showmanship, the theatre, the interaction of of guests uh, of the staff to the guests kind of way. Um, so yeah, in terms of theatre, uh, I think that is extremely important for uh, both a bar and a restaurant. Mm. Do you see chefs becoming a bit more like bartenders these days? Because I know in the sort of luxury restaurant sector, places like your restaurants. And you know many others, like Noma and some you know some of the other sort of top restaurants in Europe. When you go there, you are often served dishes by the chefs. Yeah. And if it's not the chef, then I guess it's a very well informed member of staff who effectively knows how to cook the dish. Um, do you do you but do you see um, chefs taking on more of that service role as opposed to being behind you know a wall or a screen? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. I think it's I think it's super important, but it's also really it's really rewarding. You, a chef will work, you know, 16, 18 hours a day still. Um, well, I know definitely in our places, they still work long hours. So when they go and serve that, that a specific table, one of the dishes that they've created, and the guest's face lightens up, that's that like pat on the back that they were like, this is why I do it. So for that, it's great. For the guest, it's great because they're like, oh, and you made this. This looks wonderful. And then they have some sort of like face behind the dish. Um, Mm. Being a chef is actually really, really easy to do it, but it's a lot of work, a lot of hours, a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, personal time disappears, and you just kind of absorb yourself into your restaurants, especially, especially me. Um, so when a guest gets really excited uh, about what you've just created, everything else is perfect in that moment in time. Yeah. You do it again. You do it again. You come back tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, I, I did a couple of years in kitchens and. Um not quite the standard of the ones that you um, operate but uh, I do seem to remember feeling very disconnected from what was going on on the floor because it was just a kind of bright white box um, detached from the rest of the restaurant um, by walls and um, it's little wonder that it becomes a sort of stressful thankless job when you're just kind of dishing out food into a hole and not really getting any kind of gratitude or feedback of what it is you're producing. You don't know. And I mean, you can have staff obviously give feedback, but in, in sort of mediocre establishments, it tends to only be the negative feedback that gets back to the kitchen. Just adds to what is already, you know, a long, like you say, long working hours, hot environment, and oftentimes, you know, quite 
hostile environment, um, certainly in some of the establishments that I've, I've worked in. Um, so I, I think, it's, I think it's, it's great for chefs that they are finally coming out of the kitchen. And I, th I guess it comes, it's probably comes hand in hand a little bit with the, the exposure on TV that we're seeing of chefs, increasing exposure, you know, where they're becoming household names, celebrity chef kind of thing. And guests want that interaction because they, they recognize the skill and the professionalism that goes on back there. Oh, 100%. 100%. And I suppose the thing is, with, uh, with, with especially with The Frog in, in London, I would say that my name on the door brings people there once, but the service brings them back again and again. So that, that making sure that not only that the chefs are very uh, aware of how to, how to interact with guests is, um, is very, very, very important because one, you know, chefs aren't the most social butterflies out there, are they? They're, they're hidden in a little white box like you mentioned. So we do a lot of training with uh, how to present yourself, how to talk, how to do that little elegant service uh, and interact with a guest in a knowledgeable way without jamming it down their throat every single process you did to make that dish. Yeah, it's interesting. Um because bartenders, I guess, are becoming a bit more like chefs these days as well. The two kind of careers are converging on one another. You know, back in the day, a bartender was really just a service individual. You know, they get a check printed through or an order verbally communicated and they produce the product um, and obviously do the customer service side of things if it's, if it's that kind of bar. Um, but nowadays, we have bartenders that are investigating ingredients and you know considering production methods using much of the equipment that you find in a, in a modern kitchen in order to produce these ingredients infusions and whatever it might be and so the two are sort of yeah converging on one another yeah I, I, the one thing i really do enjoy about having this uh, having a restaurants and bars is making sure that there is a hundred percent synergy you know if uh, so when for instance when it's a cocktail tasting or a, a food tasting upstairs the chefs are involved in that too everyone has an opinion and it doesn't really matter if they specialize in cocktails pastry or, or actual or just normal chefing everyone can have an opinion if the acidity levels there the the, the mouthfeel the flavor the balance the look the smell the taste the presentation all of that jazz and when a bartender and a chef both lower their egotistical shadows down and work together with one another you create something far better mm. yeah i mean i spent a lot of my early career um like 15 20 years ago working in restaurant bars and you know decent restaurants down here in cornwall but the the relationship between well front of house bar and kitchen it was like it was three different businesses operating under the same roof a lot of the time you know it's like i've got my thing to do you got yours you got yours, please don't encroach on mine or try and input into mine in any way because, you know, we've got this bit locked down and you can do whatever you need to do. And um, it's crazy, really, that it, 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 you know, that was the way that most restaurants in the, in the country, in the world, operated. Um, and it's just refreshing and, you know, really, I'm really optimistic now seeing so much more of this sort of synergy, like you mentioned, and interaction between the different disciplines because ultimately you're all pushing towards the same outcome right which is satisfied customers and the better that you can work together in the product production preparation and service the better the experience they're going to get i think i agree 100 percent. so tell me about eve um 
it's it's quite near frog right how how did that work in terms of a standalone cocktail bar as, as opposed to just having a restaurant bar so it's yeah it's next door um but the all four floors is is the one building but it's just the way it's segregated out um i wanted to do two things i wanted to have a cocktail bar because i love cocktails so much and i love the synergy between food and drink i wanted to have a um uh, a restaurant to have a really good cocktail bar uh, with it but I also wanted to have it running completely independent on its own. And does the, the the sustainable British luxury philosophy kind of transfers into the cocktails as well so maybe can you give me um, an idea about well how maybe how are you doing the Britishness part of that what ingredients are you using that are quintessentially British and what perhaps are you avoiding as well? So thing, things that um, things that we make inside of the inside of Eve are a lot of foraged items. So we, we have two labs. We have a drinks lab and a food lab. We have a development team that goes foraging and does all of that sort of stuff with us. But using things like Woodruff instead of Tonka beans, mm. using things like Meadowsweet instead of vanilla or almonds, using um, wild chamomile instead of pineapple, ghost flowers instead of coconut, any of these sort of things that we can find in the UK all over and in large quantity, and we have the ability to have them all stored for a year as well, is, is something really great. Just some, something like um, a, a perfect Manhattan, one of my favorite drinks of all times. I wanted to, I wanted to uh, create a perfect Manhattan that utilizes all of that cherry. Cherries grow in abundance in this country, but I wanted not just to use a cherry, I wanted to use a stone, I wanted to use a stalk, and I wanted to use the blossom. So when we, and also to have it utilizing everything. So making, making a vermouth is really quite easy. It's oxidized wine with, with, with lots of different roots, etc. So to be able to make your own vermouth using your spent wines from upstairs, and then in, do one infused with cherry blossom and one infused with the, uh, with the toasted cherry stones after it's infused, then to, uh, then to infuse it again with the cherry sticks having the cherries that we then get and then we age it technically we age it in whiskey not bourbon so <laughs> don't know if you can really truly class it as um, a manhattan but it's along the theme but having that whole 365 day story of a manhattan using the whole part of one cherry rather than just the cherry and then buying in other cherries to garnish it was something we wanted to work on so a guest would probably never know the difference mm. but we know the difference yeah so give, I know this, is, this isn't probably going to be an easy question to answer, but I'm interested in the kind of cost, labor cost of this approach. So let's say you're, you mentioned a bunch of ingredients you can substitute there and that you don't, you know, you reduce the food miles, you know, uh, wild chamomile for, for pineapple and uh, meadow sweet for vanilla, etc. But those ingredients need foraging um, or you need some kind of pretty novel supply um, chain in order to get hold of them. Now, it's easy just to import tonka beans or pineapples, of course. They're available, you know, from anywhere. Plus, you, you know, you have the preparation side of it as well. Perhaps, you know, you don't get as strong a pineapple flavor out of, you know, 300 grams of uh, wild chamomile as you do some pineapple juice. So you might need more of it or you might need a more labor-intensive preparation process where it requires constant kind of monitoring or something. Roughly, you know, by, a, you know, is it maybe twice expensive, three times expensive labor cost? Where do you kind of see this, uh, you know, commitment to sustainability in terms of cost as opposed to just going down the, 
traditional routes of buying whatever your veg supplier's got. So the cost is a lot higher, but the cost is only going to be high for a certain time of the year and then it balances itself right out because obviously things are very seasonal. So we have, we have, a, we have like I mentioned, two labs where we have loads of storerooms where when it's meadow sweet season, we're all going out. All, all of us, the chefs, the bar team, but the bar team, everyone, the uh, waiting staff. Such a good ingredient. Eh? Oh, I love it. With uh, with with big big bags, and we are foraging a hell of a lot. And then we've got this like 10, uh, 10, 10 rack ovens where we dry them out, and then we then we separate them between the sticks, the flat, uh, the the more the, the the main sticks, the um, the pollen, and then the rest, where we can utilize three different things in vatpat bags where they last us for the year. So the labour cost is high on certain times of year, that's one example. Um, but then it balances itself out and you have a plethora of all these wonderful ingredients that you can then pick and choose from throughout the year and have, and have a play with. You know, vanilla is expensive, tonka beans is expensive. Playing with that, you then save yourself a lot more money throughout the year. Mm. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. It's just doing the work when it's available uh, so that you've got that backup you know, throughout the rest of the year, I guess. Yeah, it, it, it is, it is. Um, but the thing that's quite exciting about it as well is, is the fact that a lot of staff would never have been foraging before or have seen specific ingredients like all the new ones. But when they're forced to, it's, it's actually a working day. You spend, you'll spend them days foraging as a working day, not just um, it's your time off, do you want to come? You're made to learn about it. You're made to see it. You're made to understand all about it. Then when, then when it then comes to explaining your drink to a guest, I foraged that. We did it in this area. It's awesome. This is what we did with this. This is how we did it. And you feel passionate about it. You, seemed, you, you, helped, you helped curate something by finding the ingredients for it, not just opening a pack of tonka beans and gritting it into a drink or, or opening a bottle of alcohol and just pouring it into it. You helped curate it. And I think when you have ownership of something, it's really, really magical. Yeah. And of course, like you say, the communication to the guests increases the customer value. And, you know, your price point can reflect that as well, because you're, you're building in so much value to the whole proposition. Agreed. A lot of the time when uh, bartenders hear about chefs doing cocktails, they just immediately assume, oh, right, they're going to be doing some savoury drinks because I guess the assumption is that oh, chefs mostly cook savoury food. But I, I'm, I, do you, do, have you played around with savoury flavours in cocktails? And do you think it works? Yeah, I think it works. Um, there, you know, something like an oyster martini. We're not the first people in the world to do it, but when it, we, we go through mm. a hell of a lot of oysters in, uh, in Cornwall. So you know, whenever, you, whenever you chuck an oyster... Um, don't use the oyster itself, the shells, uh, and infuse that in vodka, and then and then and then obviously um, spin it, so get rid of all of the bacteria, any little bits of whatever, and you have that wonderful salinity of sea flavour inside of inside of um, your vodka to be able to then make a like a, a an oyster martini, like a sea flavoured martini. You can play around with that sort of stuff. Or you can then utilize all loads of herbs, loads of other bits of fruits, tops of strawberries, loads of things which you can easily make wonderful stuff with and, and turn it down the sweet route. Like, you know, egg yolks. We all use egg whites in pastry. We have loads of yolks, or so adding custards to drinks, or even using egg yolks to thicken drinks. But the great thing about this place is we, um, we, we have the ability to use nitrogen. 
So to, to, to make the best pina colada ever, and this is coming from a chef, not, not someone who's a bartender, but you cannot be a pina colada made with liquid nitrogen than blending it. We used to use uh, liquid nitrogen to make uh, eggnog ice cream back in one of my earlier bars. Um, it's called Pearl, it was in Marylebone, and we had, we, we had a liquid nitrogen supply. And we just stick it, stick all the ingredients in a KitchenAid mixer and make it a la minute. It was great fun because sort of theatrical, lots of uh, nitrogen gas on the bar top. And then what emerges is this beautiful ice cream. And of course, I ice cream with um, nitrogen is just the smoothest. I think it's to do with the way the, the water crystals form smaller. So you get that silky texture. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the water, you don't get water crystals in um, nitrogen because the, the ingredient hasn't split. It, it, when it freezes slowly, it starts to separate very, very slightly. Yeah. But when you're doing a nitrogen, you're shocking it quickly that it doesn't allow any time for crystals to be formed. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And good for garnishes as well. We used to freeze all manner of, of herbs and bits and pieces. And you can do crazy, it's good sort of preparation um, techniques as well. I remember we used to freeze um, grapefruits and raspberries and then when you freeze it rapidly like that you can pull apart all the little because those fruits are sort of made up of basically little caviar balls aren't they and you can pull them apart really easily. I seem to remember reading that El Bully used to have a chef that would just pick these fruits apart with tweezers and then they realized at some point that they could freeze it with nitrogen and kind of do it immediately. That's much easier. <laughs> but uh, going back to what you're saying in about mar martinis, I always think of a martini as quite a savory cocktail. I mean it changes when you put lemon oils in it or on it um, but um, you know, a naked martini with no garnish is pretty damn savory because it's kind of got the, you know, a lot of the botanicals are roots and spices and they're quite savory. Juniper has a sort of savory element to it. And then vermouth too, like as you already mentioned and made from similar ingredients. So just to sort of finish up, where, where do you see the next five years going for restaurants and bars? What, what, it's the sort of trends question, I guess but sort of rephrased. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen next? Oh, I don't really know. I have been asked that question a lot um, over the last couple of weeks. You know, what's the new trend and that sort of thing. And I always answer it pretty much the same way. I don't really care about trends. You know, uh, we, what we do is we, we're, very, we're, we're very much focused on what we're trying to create, which is be the best British and sustainable practice places that we have in the group. And if a trend comes about, that's all, that's all great. Um, but try and create trends yourself rather than follow them, I would say. I know that's a yeah. real rubbish answer. No, uh, no, I agree. But if you keep focusing on out there, like, oh, what's the next big thing? What's the next big thing? You lose track of your own personality and who you are as a person. So uh, try and make the trends rather than, um, rather than copy them. Yeah, I agree totally. Is there anywhere in particular that you, um, you sort of find uh, inspiration? Are there any other chefs or maybe it's producers growers or or it might even be artists or musicians who trigger a kind of like oh now that would be an interesting thing to do um with that ingredient or that flavor i'm inspired by loads of stuff um smells tastes flavors travel does it the most for me you know because i get i learn i'm i my, my inspiration comes from what i'm excited about what i've just learnt and then I try and bring it back to the UK and use British ingredients to make it. For instance, kimchi, I love. It's one of my favorite things in the world. But instead of buying it, we use the cauliflower leaves 
because we use cauliflower and we ferment that to make it taste like kimchi. So using British ingredients. I love oyster sauce. So I make, we make our own oyster sauce using our own oysters. It's super easy to do. Um, we make our own soy sauce using all of the leftover bread because we make bread fresh every single day. Um, so once a week we save all the bread that's left over and we make our own soy sauce using bread, not soybeans. Um, so I, my, I get really, you know, turned on. I get really excited about how do I make the flavor that I was really, that I was inspired to see, taste and experience back in the UK using something that would be normally thrown away. But obviously, I don't ferment lots of stuff because I hate the flavor of garbage. You know, lots of fermented, bowls of fermented food is just like, it smells like a bin, it tastes like a bin. It's like bin water inside the bottom of the plate. It's disgusting. But using them to enhance dishes and enhance drinks, that's what really gets me excited. Nice. Good stuff. Well, it is inspiring. Um, I think we'll leave it there. I need to go and dig some cauliflower leaves out of the bin. <laughs> Make sure you become a Diageo Bar Academy member. Head over to diageobaracademy.com for the latest industry news, events, and inspiration. And subscribe to get it emailed to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bar Chat. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Adam. I found it really interesting and useful and inspiring. And um, I'm very much looking forward to getting back to his restaurants. All right, we will see you next time. 